Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 25, 14 through 30. And we're reading from the New Living Translation. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by, by a story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. Then he left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The, master, the servant who'd received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest and I have earned two more. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, if you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what I have given, what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to, Thanks God. Be to God. Rather solemn words to end with, don't you think? Title of our 
sermon this morning is trust. The feeling is mutual. At this time of year, there's a sense of urgency in our church life. The church year ends and Advent begins in a few short weeks. People complain that Christmas advertising begins right after Halloween. But of course, merchants benefit from this. I think maybe observing Advent is the benefit for Christians. We have a kind of double identity. We enjoy the decorations, special music, schmaltzy Christmas specials, all the while carrying on a protest movement of Advent observance. Our recent scripture reflections have been about the last days, the coming kingdom of God. We've been looking at the importance of being prepared, expectant, and living in the light of Christ's imminent return. Whether he comes this afternoon or a millennium from now, that's not the point. It's our state of mind that matters. Well, this is our second Sunday in Matthew 25. It's divided in, the readings are divided into three parts, each for one Sunday. And last Sunday, we looked at the parable of the 10 bridesmaids, five of whom got the door shut in their faces because they ran out of oil for their lamps. Today, we have the parable of the three servants. And next week, we'll have the parable of the sheep and the goats on Christ the King Sunday, the last day of the church year and Jesus' depiction of the final days before the kingdom, the judgment of the world. Now, we don't like to dwell on the disturbing idea of Jesus as cosmic judge, as judge of the universe. We prefer to imagine Jesus holding a sheep or blessing a child. We've domesticated his parables as well. We think of them as children's stories about Jesus, the healer and storyteller, instead of king and judge of all. A New Testament scholar explains, Jesus used parables and Jesus was put to death. Those two facts are related. Why was this man crucified? The parables must be understood as part of the drama. No one would crucify a teacher who simply told pleasant morality tales. The parables are not harmless tales, but weapons of warfare. Now, I might not call them weapons, but certainly there are confrontive, offensive commentary on the religious practices of Jesus' day. His increasing confrontations with religious leaders in his last three days lead directly to his death. The in-your-face parable before us today is traditionally called the parable of the talents. And many people understand this story to mean that God gives us different gifts and talents to use for the good of others. But this cannot be what the story means. Nobody would be crucified for telling a story with an inoffensive moral like that. This story was meant to shock. 
Previously in Matthew 24, Jesus has withdrawn to the Mount of Olives with his disciples after encountering increased hostility from Jewish leaders. The disciples ask him a question. Well, it seems odd to us. What sign will you signal your return and the end of the world? And then Jesus pointedly warns them not to pay any attention to any predictions of the end because it's most important to trust God and be alert. No one knows the actual day and time. Only God, he says. Be alert. You don't know when I will return. And then in Matthew 25, he tells them the parables to show what he means by being alert. A pastor from Tennessee and her husband were vacationing when they found themselves in a pretty deep hole on purpose. They were camping at Raccoon Mountain near Chattanooga when she had the bright idea that caving would be a fun adventure. So they signed up, filled out the waiver, dressed appropriately, and headed to the cavern entrance to meet their guide for the waterfall dome tour. The three and a half hours or so of exploring. Soon they left the lit portion of the caverns and after a slippery walk and belly crawl, they took a short break. Their energetic guide, Ben, jokingly asked, so, who here is afraid of heights? The pastor stiffened. She hadn't bargained on heights while deep in a cave. Ben went on to describe the Y body position move they'd need for the next section. They would need to angle themselves like a ninja warrior over an opening, which he guessed had a drop of eight to 20 feet, depending on where you were. Then he smiled and asked who was ready to go. She definitely was not. She wondered if it was possible to backtrack. Luckily, they'd only been going for about 30 minutes. And then she remembered that the website said the minimum age for the tour was eight and the minimum height was 56 inches. Eight-year-olds do this? I guess fear doesn't hold them back. Fortunately, her husband saw her panic and reassured her he would help her get through it. So they made it. In fact, the cavern was so dark, you couldn't really see the depth of the drops and it wasn't nearly as dramatic as the guide predicted. Difficult? Yes. Unnerving? Absolutely. But doable. The pastor concluded, at the end of the day, you have to overcome your fears if you wanna get out of the cave. There had to be mutual trust between her and her husband. In our parable, only two of the three servants would have made it out of the cave. That third servant would still be sitting in the muddy cavern with his one bag of gold. The master trusted him with an exorbitant sum of money, but he did not return that trust. Now, the master doesn't give out what we call talents as in gifts and talents. The master gives out money to his three servants. It's unfortunate that the English word talent, meaning natural ability, 
is the same as the word for the gold or silver coin in the original parables. As soon as we start talking about talents, we're going to miss sight of the point altogether. We need to get talents out of our minds. This parable is about money. We often use the slogan, time, talents, and treasure. Fleming Rutledge comments that putting time, talents, and treasure together distracts our attention from the real issue, which is money. For one thing, we don't use the word treasure when we talk about money. The three T's are clever, but they make it too easy for us to avoid the issue of money. The slogan is ineffective because it lets us off the hook. If we divert our attention to time and talents, which aren't very threatening, we don't have to think about what really makes us nervous, namely talking about money. Over the years, various new titles for the parable have been proposed to correct the misunderstanding about talents. The best one is the parable of the money and trust. That works. Jesus chooses the largest unit of currency available at the time to help us really get the point. A talent weighed 60 to 90 pounds, depending on the metal used. And it was the equivalent of about 20 years wages. So the first servant was entrusted with several lifetimes worth of his master's money. And the second servant with half as many heaps of gold and silver. Jesus assumes that his listeners know about good business practice. The whole purpose of the master's allocation of his money is that it be used to make more money. He expects a good return on his investment when he returns. In other words, he's hiring money managers. Jesus' hearers will understand this. This money is not just supposed to sit there. It's meant to go to work. The man going on a long trip has given the servants a stupendous sum of money, showing that he trusts them with a significant responsibility in his absence. Some years later, Jesus continues, the man arrives home and goes into the accounts with them. And the one who is given the equivalent of, let's say, 500 years salary, comes in with double that amount. And we're meant to understand that he's done a good job. The master is delighted. Well done. You're a sound, reliable servant. You've been trustworthy with a few things. Now I'm going to put you in charge of much more. Come in and share your master's rejoicing. The second servant has done equally well with his 200 year supply of bags of silver or gold. And he receives just as much praise and the same invitation. Come in and share your master's pleasure. These two servants are eager to advance their master's cause. We notice the joy and excitement. Servants and master alike are thrilled and look forward to celebrating these accomplishments. And then, now here comes the third servant. This is the one who was given, hmm, merely one lifetime supply of money. He says, sir, I know you, you are a hard man reaping 
where you never sewed and collecting where you never laid out. So I was scared and I went and buried the bags in the ground. Here's your money. On the one hand, perhaps we sympathize with the third servant. What's so wrong with being cautious? Discretion and deliberateness are virtues, not vices. But with this third servant, virtues become vices. Prudence and wariness easily turn into self-protectiveness. Inhibition turns to fear. And the servant ends up refusing to risk trading in the marketplace. The third servant simply waits for the master to come back so he can return the money, perhaps like a hot potato, saying, here you go, it's all there. Every coin accounted for, just like you gave me. Nothing new to see here. But going from bad to worse, he proceeds to insult and slander his master, to, acute, to excuse his inactivity. You're so demanding. You make me feel inadequate. You take advantage of poor people. If I'd lost your money, you'd have thrown me in debtor's prison. Instead of acknowledging the incredible generosity and trust his master placed in him, he tries to shift blame. We've all been like this at one time or another, indulging in escapism instead of shouldering responsibility. But the master is disgusted. You're a wicked, lazy servant. Take his 50 million and give it to the one who has 200 million. Throw this useless servant out into the darkness outside where he can weep and wail over his stupidity. Perhaps you're worried about the poor ser servant and shaking your head at the master's harshness. Well, how might you feel if you turned over retirement savings or inheritance to an investment banker? And he gave it back a couple years later with no return saying, well, I was terrified that you'd be angry with me if I lost your money. Wouldn't you wanna fire him on the spot with a few choice comments? Or imagine the true story of a father who dies after a brief illness. The man possessed a substantial inheritance, but at his death, it's almost all gone. The father has neither invested it nor enabled it to grow. It's simply sat in the bank and drained away in the father's declining years. His son is torn between grief and anger. Grief because he loved his father and frustration at the wasted inheritance. We're also to understand that the third servant wasted his chance. That is the correct reaction to the story. Now, the shock value of the story is not about the fate of the servant because Jesus expects the disciples to agree with the judgment passed. If an endowment doesn't grow, its managers have failed. Common knowledge. The challenge to our understanding of the parable and its offense is somewhere else. Remember, Jesus tells this parable just a few days before his arrest and crucifixion. To figure out why this parable, among others, 
would make people want to seek his death, we must look deeper. Who is the parable directed toward? Who in Jesus' world is like that third servant? Could it be the powerful religious leaders of his day? All four gospels tell us that this group find his teaching intolerable. Their primary concern is with maintaining their own status. And very early in Jesus' ministry, they begin to feel offended and attacked by his parable. And this is the reason they plot his death. Jesus uses this story to warn that God's gifts are never for hoarding. We're not to hold on to them passively. God expects that we will put his gifts to work to increase them. God is not interested in the religious leaders or our personal or institutional security or status. God's servants are ready to invest their resources in God's kingdom, God's causes. They are ready to extend themselves, to risk for God's sake. The third servant never gets this. Whether or not he expects to be commended for his caution, he's unfit for the job and misunderstands the purpose of money and trust. It's to be used, not stored up as a guarantee of safety. Well, it's human nature to be cautious and we don't typically look for ways to give away money. So this parable makes us uneasy. Jesus encourages us to be free with God's gifts, but it's all too easy for us to hold back because we feel our comfort and safety is being threatened. So we don't take risks, but God gives us riches to put in action, to spread around and multiply. The Lord doesn't want us to clutch fearfully at what we have. He doesn't want us to hold it back for fear of losing it. And this doesn't just apply to individuals. It also applies to institutions and corporations and churches. The third servant's timidity and lack of imagination are just not acceptable and neither is ours. What's going to happen to him? He's gonna miss the party because he couldn't return his master's trust. His master was incredibly generous and trusting with his resources, taking into account the capacity and abilities of each of the three servants. He tailored the size of the investment to each, but the reward to each investor was the same, regardless of the amount of interest and growth they achieved. What does this mean for us, for Covenant Community Church? Today, we're together in cyberspace instead of physical space. But there are ways we can expand our online reach into social media. What do we think would connect with unchurched people? Could we have an online cafe gathering during the week? All throughout this pandemic, I've been asking God to direct us in the use of our resources. How can we increase our presence in our community? Now, we don't have a great deal of ready liquidity, but 
we do have a beautiful spacious piece of property and a building that we cannot use right now. We've wisely discontinued building uh, using services that we don't need. The Red Cross continues to hold blood drives in our facility, but how might we increase our investment of this gift of physical space, primarily of course our outside space in our community? Can we provide a hotspot to help students get online? Can we regularly hand out frozen meals? What can we do with our open space? What crazy ideas can we come up with to bless our neighborhood as winter approaches and COVID continues to rage? God has entrusted us with resources. Let's make the feeling mutual and find creative ways to return God's trust. Trust, the feeling is mutual. Amen.